We're going to turn now to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 1, verses 18 to 25. And uh, Cole is preaching us to us from this text, A Child Out of Wedlock is the title. Matthew, chapter 1, and verse 18 following. This is how the birth of Jesus, the Messiah, came about. His mother was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him and in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet, the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife. But he did not consummate their marriage until she gave birth to a son, and he gave him the name Jesus. We thank God for his word to us. Thank you. Thank you, Terry. And my slides, please. As Terry said, we're looking at a child out of wedlock from Matthew chapter 1, and that passage that Terry has just read for us. MIT, the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, the world-famous institute that deals with computing and technology itself, some years ago now got a group of degree class students together and the professor divided the class into two. He got the females to stand on one side of the room and the males to stand on the other and he gave them half an hour each to sit down in their gender groupings and to work out exactly what gender is a computer. What sex is a computer? And so these two groups liberated quietly for around about 30 minutes. And eventually he got them back together. And the first group he turned to was the men. And he asked the men, and the men had voted 100% that without a doubt, computers are female. And when asked why, they gave these reasons. First of all, computers are female because no one but their maker understands their internal logic. <laughs> Secondly, computers are female because when computers communicate with each other, they speak in a coded language that only they and other computers understand. Thirdly, computers are female because every mistake you make is stored on their hard drive for later retrieval. Most men realize at Christmas time we are on the naughty list. And fourthly, because computers are female, because as soon as you commit to one, you spend a lot of money having to update it. 
But then he turned to the female group and said, what gender do you think a computer is? And the women to a person said, but they believed the computers were 100% male. The first reason they said is because computers are male because they have lots of data, but still can't think for themselves. <laughs> Secondly, computers are male because they're supposed to solve problems but most of the time, they are the problem. <laughs> and lastly, computers are male because as soon as you decide to commit to one, you discover that if you waited a little bit longer, a better model will have come along. <laughs> Gender remains highly controversial in this age and this day. And the passage that Terry just read for us is one of those very, very controversial passages that some people simply dismiss as fiction, as fairy tale, alongside the children around elves and Father Christmas. Others, Christians, believe it's one of those areas that you can believe if you're particularly spiritual, but otherwise you can just forget about it and put it on that side of the grey area of Christian faith where other Christians believe that this is critical to understanding our salvation. But for most people, that passage is simply, something simply unbelievable. And one of the reasons people believe the virgin birth is such a fantasy in 2019 is because it couldn't happen in 2019. Good grief, it's hard enough to find teenage young people in, in under 50, uh, at the ages of 13 upwards who are virgins nowadays because it's so common to sleep around. Sex is seen as a commodity, almost a hobby, a recreational activity. It's no longer required to be seen as regarded as something, that's, something that should be kept until a person decides to commit to someone in the act of marriage. I think it's not insignificant that we have more depression and mental anxiety among our young people in this day, but also it is an age in which we are so immoral and we have few, guide, few guidelines by which we live. I think there's a correlation there among our young people. And so we're so used to immorality that we cynically project our current morality back 2,000 years ago to the time of Christ and assume the way we see things now was the way it was then. But that's just simply not true. The fact is, although scientifically this may be hard to grasp, this concept this belief in the virgin birth is critical to what we believe as Christians in how God saves us. It's critical for various reasons. It's critical, first of all, because it's found in the pages of Scripture. And the Bible is God-breathed, 2 Timothy 3.16. All Scripture is God-breathed. And all Scripture includes this passage in Matthew chapter 1. When we start to say we can believe that in the Bible, but can't believe that in the Bible... We then don't have a book that's holy in the sense of being special. We have a book that's holy in the sense of being like a string vest. You don't know what to believe. What is true and what isn't true. Because the virgin birth's not true, then, well, what about the resurrection? And if the resurrection's not true, well, Paul says in Corinthians 15, then we're, we're doomed. We might as well give up, shut up the church, and go out and shop like everyone else does on, Christmas, on these days before Christmas. They're key doctrines in Scripture which are vital for us to understand our faith. And this about the virgin birth is one of them. And Matthew begins in this passage as if he's in a court of law. And he makes an opening statement. 
He says, now, this is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. He's speaking as if he's making a court case before the judge and the jury, making a statement, this is how it happened. No other way. This is the truth. And Matthew contains a very interesting account of the birth of Jesus that differs in, great, uh, in, in detail from the account given us by Luke. And scholars believe that Luke's gospel is actually reflecting on Mary's story. That Luke the doctor's main source behind his gospel is in fact Mary. Where Matthew's main source behind his gospel on the nativity story is in fact Joseph. And this is actually confirmed and we actually find on that this whole account follows on from the genealogy of Jesus found in at Matthew chapter 1 that Ter- Terry preached on last week. And we find the verse before this, our passage begins, says this, And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, and Mary was the mother of Jesus, who is called the Messiah. The genealogy in Matthew's 1 is in fact Joseph's genealogy. And it's there because Matthew is writing to a Jewish audience. All the Gospels have different flavours to them. And Matthew's flavour is a Jewish flavour. He's writing to confirm that Jesus is the Son of God. He is, in fact, the Messiah. That's his whole emphasis. Luke's writing to a a, a Greek audience. And Mark to a Roman audience. And here we have Matthew demonstrating and trying to demonstrate to Jews that this, is, this man is in fact, we can believe in him because he comes from the Davidic line. He comes from the line of David, from the dynasty of King David. So he begins by giving the genealogy of David that leads right up to Joseph. And who is Joseph? He is the husband of Mary. Here we've got the proof if you like, that Jesus is of the Davidic line. He's of the Messianic line. He is, in fact, the Son of God. And so the first thing that actually uh, Matthew comes to point out is this, that it begins with an unmarried mother, someone who's socially rejected. He begins by saying this, this is how the birth of Jesus, the Messiah, came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together... She was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. When Joseph says his mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, he's referring to the Hebrew betrothal period, which is very, very different to our engagement period for several important reasons. You see there's three stages in the Jewish marriage. Stage one was the engagement And that wasn't made necessarily between the the man and the woman or the boy or the girl. It was made by two families and the parents of two families. Marrying a person you fell in love with was not a concept around the first century. And most people, their life partner was chosen for them by their families. And the arrangement was come to, and that arrangement was seen to be the engagement between the couple. As Professor Willie Barclay writes, marriage was held to be far too serious a step to be left of the dictates of the human heart. And stage two took place when the couple were much older, and normally when they're in their teenage years, and that was called the betrothal period, and normally lasted for 12, 12 months. It was a formal stage in which the two families would begin to actually prepare and plan the wedding to take place in a year's time. During that period, it was a formal and binding period, and they actually were called husband and wife because they were committed to each other. You see, before the betrothal period, 
the woman could actually break off the engagement. She could say, no, I don't want to marry this young man. I've seen the way he's growing up and I don't like him. I don't want to be married or, or, or tie myself to him for the rest of my life. She could do that up until the betrothal period. Once they entered in that final 12 months, it was binding and they actually began to be referred to as husband and wife, but still they would not occupy the same house or occupy the same bed. They lived separately in the homes of their families, but it was the binding last 12 months before their marriage. So if during the engagement period, for example, the husband-to-be died, then she would be described as a widow, but a virgin widow, because she'd never made love to her husband. It was a very, very formal period in the marriage procedure. And then after the 12 months, there will be the marriage, and the marriage would normally last for seven days. And the husband will take the wife from the the family of, or, or, or from her family to his own family, and the, and the father would often build on, his father would build on a room on their house for them to live in for the start of their marriage. Betrothal was absolutely binding. And if you ended the betrothal, you couldn't do it like you can nowadays with a text. It had to be done via divorce. So serious was it. It had to be done through the courts of the law. And here was Mary in the proprietary year before her actual marriage and it was discovered that she was pregnant and Joseph knew it wasn't him because he'd been nowhere near her in that way for the past few months or at all. And so here we have a situation where it would be a social disgrace. Jesus wasn't born in a way in which he came into the world in some kind of great fanfare. He was born under a cloud he was born into a poor family. Joseph was a carpenter, and carpenters didn't earn much in the, 21st, in the, in the first century. His mother wasn't, was a woman who everyone knew became pregnant before Joseph had actually been to lay with her. And therefore there was all this slander and this gossip going around in the background behind the birth of Jesus Christ. You see, what we see in this story is this, is that Jesus... And God identifies with you. He identifies with me. Jesus wasn't born into Beverly Hills. He wasn't born with great amount of money, with a famous film star father. He wasn't born into South Kensington. He didn't have a title. His mother and father weren't those of the political elite, those who were gifted and knew the royal family. Jesus was born in a stable among the commoners. In fact, beyond, beneath the commoners because even common people had homes, their own homes, but there was no place, we're told in the Bible, for him to rest his head. So he was laid upon an animal feeding trough for his bed. He was born into scandal and poverty. He was born so that you and I could relate to him. He was born for the common man and the common woman. And if his start to life was a rocky start, then we find it gets worse because we find that his father was an unbelieving husband. We find that the relationship between Mary and Joseph started off on a poor foot because Mary was found to be pregnant. And we can't blame Joseph because Joseph, like any other man, would be suspicious in those circumstances. 
Matthew writes, because Joseph was her husband, was a faithful. Notice that Joseph, her husband, he's only betrothed. Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace. He had in mind to divorce her quietly. Joseph was in a quandary. He was a kind man. He'd known Mary for years. They'd been engaged since they were children. And he loved Mary. And he didn't want Mary to be dragged through the law courts and humiliated publicly in this way. And so he decided that he wanted to, to actually end the relationship quietly. It was very, very serious what was happening. In fact, it would only have been a few centuries beforehand but if, that if a woman had been discovered pregnant during her betrothal period and her husband wasn't the, uh, and, and the father wasn't the, the, the husband-to-be, then she would have been stoned to death. It was, it was terrible. This is really serious within the community. And yet by this stage, divorce had become more common. And so while Joseph was reflected on his options, how he was going to divorce her quietly, he fell into a deep sleep and his mind was changed. How? God changed it. There's a clue, ladies. How do you change your husband's mind? You know, husband's minds are difficult to change. Take it to the Lord in prayer. That's the way to do it. God changed Joseph's mind. But after he considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. God spoke to Joseph. God told Joseph to take her home because what was happening in her life was supernatural. Mary had not been unfaithful to him. What was happening was miraculous and wonderful. What was being conceived in her was from the Holy Spirit. Now I can't explain scientifically what happened to Mary. And no one knows the process and how wonderfully God worked in her womb. But what we do know is it wasn't sordid or crude, or dirty. But it was something beautiful, because God made supernaturally something divine to begin to happen in her womb, mixing with her human, uh, a, a, a human body and DNA. And this is critical theology here. This is something we can't simply dismiss and put it down to fantasy. It's not fantasy. The Bible doesn't do fantasy doesn't do myth. If you want to see myth, go down to the British Museum. There's lots of myth in the British Museum. The Muna Elish, classic example of Babylonian myth. You can see the tablets there. If you can read cuneiform, you can read it, but you'll find there'll be a translation next in the cabinets explaining what the cuneiform tablets say. There's loads of myth. If you want to see modern myth, look at Marvel comics. Marvel comics are full of people. People lap up myth nowadays. Superman. These are myths. But the Bible doesn't describe myth. The Bible describes real people with real thoughts and real problems. You've got here a young man deliberating on what he must do about his unfaithful bride, contemplating divorce because he's struggling with what life has thrown at him. These aren't superheroes wearing their pants on the outside of their trousers. These are human beings struggling with the reality of life. This isn't written in the genre or of the, of, of the, of, of the um, descriptive style of myth. This isn't myth. Why is it important? Because if God is to be a mediator, 
if Jesus is to be a mediator, he has to be half human. He has to well, be fully divine, but he has to be someone who's of human flesh as well as being divine. You have to be between the two. If Jesus was simply the result of some tumble in the grass between Mary and some other young Palestinian lad, then Jesus would have been born into sin. He would have a sinful nature. So he could never die for people who were sinful because he himself was sinful. When he'd be hanging on the cross, he'd be dying for his own sins. Only the sinless Son of God, born of a virgin, whose conception came from God himself, could die for you and me. Although he was in human flesh, he was divine and not given to a sinful nature. This is critical theology to understanding how God paid the price of our sin and came down to us at Christmas. And we embrace this with faith and not simply reason. Not blind faith. Christianity isn't about blind faith. God wouldn't have given you a brain if he believed in blind faith. He's given you a brain. He's given you intellects. He's given you the ability to, to study and to, and to make yourself equipped. And I really encourage you to do that. But this is faith born of a relationship. You see, why did, why did Joseph find it so easy to believe what the angel said? He found it easy because he knew Mary. He'd been engaged to her for a long time. He'd grown up with her. He knew her heart. He knew her nature. He knew her personality. He knew this wasn't what the kind of thing Mary would do. And so when the angel came, it was a great relief. And he said, God, that explains it. Because he knew this woman. And our faith is not mere a leap of faith. It's born out of relationship. My confidence in the Bible, my confidence in my God is because I know the Lord Jesus. It's because I grow in that love and that knowledge of him. That relationship feeds my faith, feeds my understanding. Our faith is not blind. It is relational faith. And if you struggle sometimes in what the Bible says, Brothers and sisters, get to know your Lord Jesus. Listen to his voice. Because when you know him, you will trust him. And when you know him, you'll pray, believe in prayers. Because you know that he is a God who loves you. He is powerful and would never lie to you. Joseph began to realize that it was all true. And we're told in this passage... When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife. True faith always results in action. True faith results in you doing what you believe God is telling you to do. True faith is not static, it's always dynamic. It moves us to action. And so Joseph wakes up and he gladly takes this young woman back to be his wife and does exactly as he's been told to do. So his right of naming the child is surrendered. And he names the child the name that God has given him. He calls this child Jesus. And we're told that, I'm written up there, sorry. We're told that he did not consummate their marriage until she gave birth to a son. Just to cease all the slander, all the gossip, he didn't lay with Mary until after Jesus had been born. So no one could say that that was a child of Joseph. It was definitely the Son of God. 
And so we have this unmarried mother, we have this unbelieving father, but lastly we have this unbelievable child. This unbelievable child. In all this drama, the real focus becomes on the birth of this child and what the child is called. And Joseph's deliberation about Mary's pregnancy is eclipsed when, Mary, when Matthew begins to narrate the child of the young virgin was carrying. He was an unbelievable child. And we're told, first of all, of his role. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. And the name given to the child is key here because the name is a Greek name based on a Hebrew name. The Greek name Jesus is based on the Hebrew name Jehoshua. And Jehoshua is basically two Hebrew words put together. Yeh stands for Yahweh or Jehovah and Hoshua means salvation. Yeh, Yahweh, Hoshua, salvation. Jehoshua is God will save. Eventually was, was shortened to the name Joshua. Yehoshua, Joshua, God will save. And Jesus is the Greek version of that. It literally means God will save. This is the name given to the child. Why? Because he is God and he's come to save. He is a saviour. be a great name for a goalie, wouldn't it? Playing for Colchester United. Jesus! Because you know he will save every ball that goes towards the back of the net. But Jesus literally means he will save. That's his role. He comes as a saviour to save us. The question is what? What does he save us from? Well, we're told you would have given the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. You see, sin is serious. We are we are declined to dismiss it in the 21st century. In all our striving for knowledge, the one thing we try not to know about is sin. Because we don't like it. You know, there's always talk about young people nowadays being snowflakes. I don't think it's the young people that are snowflakes. I think it's people who are snowflakes. They like to choose what they want to hear, what they don't want to hear. They don't like to talk about things they don't like, and this is one of them. So we, can't, we began to redefine sin nowadays. We don't talk of sin in the same way as it did. Some things we regard as sinful, we don't regard as sinful anymore. We don't, people don't live in sin anymore. You know, they, they basically, it's very common for people to live together before they get married. But we don't call it sin. It's normal. We don't call abortion sin anymore. We call it a termination or a late form of contraception. We don't want to discuss sin because sin makes us uncomfortable. But sin is a reality and the Bible takes it seriously because sin will eventually kill people. And that is serious. And if we don't take it seriously, it will kill us. Sin is serious. The ultimate sin of the world is rejecting God and his son Jesus Christ because he is the means of forgiveness. And if we, regret, we reject the means of forgiveness, there is no other way. And, and we are not judged by our standards. We are judged by God's standards. And the Bible tells us this in Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. This is where people often go wrong because they say, well, I'm not sinful. In your own eyes, you may not be sinful. The question is, how do you stand in God's eyes? Do you stand in God's eyes encompassed with his glory or with your glory? See, only God's glory is good enough. My idea of good is not good enough. 
you know. Fiona asked me to clean the bath. I clean the bath. I think it's good enough. She comes and inspects it. It's not good enough. It's not my standard that's important. It's Fiona's standard when it comes to the bathroom. Our standard isn't good enough. The standard for us is the glory of God and nothing short of that glory will do. Sin is serious. Why is it serious? Because we're told in Romans 6.23 the wages of sin is death. The price, the result of sin is death. And Jesus comes to save us from our sins. He comes to do the serious business that you and I can't do. He comes to save us from our sins. But notice that when Matthew um, writes this down, he says he will save his people from their sins. See, some people believe that God will save everyone, no matter whether they decide to follow him or not. The Bible doesn't say that. The Bible says that we have a choice. God gave us a brain and free will for a reason. And God will never trespass upon your free will. If people decide to reject God, we can reject him. Remember the rich young ruler who comes to Jesus and asks Jesus how he might be saved and he says to him, he, he, he explains that the rich young ruler justifies himself and Jesus listens to this and says, one thing you lack, go and sell all that you have and give it to the poor. And the rich young ruler can't do that, so he walks away. Well, Jesus doesn't chase him down the road and say, oh, hang on a second, let's renegotiate. Let's see if we can, I can make it a bit easier for you. He allows that man to walk away. He allows him to exercise his free will, to walk away from Jesus and to walk away from salvation. The question is, are we his people? We've got to learn to listen to his voice, as we heard earlier on with the children. And John 10 just talks about Jesus being the good shepherd. And it says this, Jesus says, I'm the good shepherd. I know my sheep and my sheep know me just as the Father knows me. And I know my, the Father. And I lay down my life for his, the sheep. I have other sheep, but are not of his sheepfold. I must bring them also. They too will listen to my voice. And there shall be one flock and one shepherd. Are we learning to listen to the voice of Jesus? Are we disciples of Jesus? Are we his people, his flock, following him, learning to listen to his voice, to his call, ready to go in his direction? He is the one who comes to save us, but we must be willing to follow. And we were told, Matthew talks about Jesus as someone that prophetic, the prophet spoke about. He introduces his first of what's called a formula quotation in, the, in, in, the, in the, uh, Matthew's Gospel to prove that Jesus is the Son of God. He quotes from Isaiah chapter 7 and verse 14. He writes this, The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. Matthew is saying this is what was promised. This child is the one the Old Testament speaks about. He's the one the prophets speak about. He is the Emmanuel. And the sign is there, the virgin will conceive. It's in the Bible. Find it, read it, and believe it. It's there already. If you care to look, you'll find the proof. You'll find the evidence. And he's quoting Isaiah 7:14. Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, 
and you will call him Emmanuel. That's Elijah speaking to King Ahab, who refuses the sign, but God says, I will give you a sign. If you won't ask for a sign, I will give you a sign. And you can read about it in Kings and in the book of Isaiah. God said, I will give you a sign. And the Bible speaks about this. Psalm 130, verse 8, He himself will redeem Israel from their sins. Jesus is the one who comes to liberate us, to save us from our sins. And what's his name? His name is Emmanuel. Isaiah 8, verse 10, Devise your strategy, but it will be fraughted. Propose your plans, but it will not stand, for God is with us. Emmanuel. The Bible speaks of a time when God will come down in such a way that he will empower his people in such a way that no one can stand against them because they are the people of God, empowered by the people of God. Paul sums it up in Romans 8 verse 31. If God is for us, who can be against us? This is the wonder of the Messiah, the wonder of Jesus, and finally... In that, we get the picture of proximity. Paul talks to his young protege, Timothy, and says these words, Beyond all question, the mystery which was true godliness springs is great. He appeared in flesh, was vindicated by the Spirit, was seen by angels, was preached among the nations, was believed on in the world, was taken up in glory. This is the mystery of what's called the incarnation, God in flesh. This is the mystery of the virgin birth. God is born inside the virgin's womb. God comes down to us. Not part of God, but the fullness of God. Colossians 2, for in Christ all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. I don't understand that, how God can come down in the form of a baby. How God can live for all those years, for 33 years upon this earth in a human body. I can't understand it. But I can believe it. Because I've come to know the Lord Jesus Christ. I've come to listen to his voice. And John talks about it in John 1.14. The word became flesh and made his way among us. And we have seen his glory. The glory of the one and only son who came from the father. Full of grace and truth. This is the true meaning of Christmas. And this requires the virgin birth. It's not a fanciful story. It's not a myth, a fable, a fairy tale. It's a reality. And it undertakes, undergirds the whole of our Christmas celebrations. Without it, we've got nothing to celebrate. All we've got is a a young woman who gets pregnant and we've got hundreds of those in Colchester and hundreds of those in this country. That's nothing to celebrate. What we celebrate here is a virgin conceives a child by the Holy Spirit and that child is given the name Jesus and is called Emmanuel, God with us. People, this is a vital doctrine, something to celebrate, something to embrace and he is a saviour we need to know. Make sure that Jesus is your Emmanuel around your Christmas tables, around your carol singing, around your celebrating, you're opening all your gifts. Remember that central gift of Christmas is Jesus. God with us. God with you. God with me.
Amen.